You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. So I'm really happy to be able to announce and uh, introduce today's speaker. Larry Bowden is not just a serial entrepreneur, he's a parallel entrepreneur. If you've looked at his uh, introduction, he's actually in the midst of two ventures, right? Simultaneously? Just switched over a new one. Okay, okay. So those two are uh, JDU Power and Q1 Nanosystems. And um, he has been in solar and alternative energy since before it was fashionable. And what's really great today, um, at a point in our history where everybody's interested in alternative energy, is to have Larry come and talk about his lessons as somebody who's been a real pioneer in that category. So Larry, we're delighted that you're here. We look forward to hearing what you have to say today, and welcome to Stanford. Thank you, well, thank you for the uh, invitation to uh, come speak with you guys tonight. Um, throughout the next hour, I prefer questions as I go as opposed to wait to the end. So if you have something, a thought, or a question for me or for the audience, please just chime in, and, and let's make this as interactive as possible. Um, as it was said, I am on my third startup, and all of them have been in the clean tech sector. Um, I just want to do kind of three things with you today. I just want to give you a snapshot of my background so you understand where I've come from, um, take you a little deeper in the two bigger startups I have done, which is Jadu and Q1 Nano, which we have just renamed recently. It is now called Blue Solar, so if I refer to it as Blue, it's the same Q1 Nano that was introduced earlier. And then I, I want to share with you some observations I've been seeing just recently, you know, month, last quarter, last six months in the uh, clean tech space. Things are happening incredibly fast. Um, for the first time ever, and I've been around the space for 13 years long before it was ever popular, um, people are really getting their heads around solving the problems at every level possible, which is government, um, startups, big companies, small companies, strategics. And I just want to share a couple of facts I picked up. I just got back from Europe three hours ago. And um, share a couple of thoughts that I want to share with you that, that what's happening over there is, is amazing how fast they're moving out on renewables and um, carbon neutral um, buildings and facilities. And then I just want to share some thoughts on just how fast the world's moving now compared to 30 years ago. It's unbelievable. And it's the exact right time. It couldn't be better to start companies because with change, there's opportunities. With opportunities, you can dive in there with the new business model or plan and make a huge, huge impact. So please ask as we go. Um, let me just give you a quick snapshot on kind of where I came from, a very large, diverse background. I spent eight years racing cars. How's that? From car racing to clean tech. There you go. Um, I got bored going fast, so I decided we would put things up in space and coast 20,000 miles an hour in orbit. So there's an extreme for you. Um, but the space industry was very interesting in that when I got into it, um, my first year, I took a quick trip to Europe and any country over there because I had a classified clearance. I had to debrief agencies to everyone I talked to because of the wall being up in the, the, uh, the war, which really wasn't one, but the Russian interface, I should say. And I ended that career with a joint development with Russia. We went into Russia bought 600 engines, and we launched defense satellites with them. So that's a big change in 13 years. Not near as fast as what's happening today. It's like accelerated dramatically. After aerospace, which I, I pretty much 
semen at my, my career in, I, I uh, dove off and I put in some dispensing systems for natural gas fleet vehicles, buses, airports, shuttle vehicles, small fleets. So we actually built the dispensing systems and the tanks that stored the natural gas and launched those in the market. So that was kind of my first taste of clean tech, still a part of a larger company, but was able to have that experience. Um, did a good job. Company called me and said, hey, great job. You want to take a VP of engineering? I'd like to have them golden handshake out for a couple of years. That was a really easy answer. So my wife and I took our boat, checked out for two years, sailed across the South Pacific, left San Francisco, went south, spent six months in Mexico, crossed all the islands, great place to be if you ever can get there, and ended up in Sydney two years later. Um, so a little sabbatical, part-time, checked out. Everyone should do that at least twice. If you get a chance to do it, jump on that. It's a great opportunity. Um, came back, and I started Jadu, a founder, one of the three founders, um, formerly CEO. I recently have changed. I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, and then in the last 90 days, I have joined a company by the name of Q1 Nano, which we just rolled the name out Monday as Blue Solar. So the founder, John Argo, is in the back, and he brought me on to help his company. They've done a phenomenally good job with probably the best kept secret in technology for three years you've ever seen, and I'll talk about that tonight. Um, Jadu, we started um, a portable fuel cell company long before clean tech was ever even interesting for people. Um, and you learn a lot of things in startups by hindsight. And I can tell you now, 2001 was not a good time to start a company. It's when the stock market was going down very quickly and all the venture capitalists was kind of receding back for two or three years. And it was a very, very tough time to get a one hydrogen, two fuel cell, and three, 2001, to get something funded. Um, but we got it done 18 months later. We got our first round done. And over a period of six years, we built an idea from kind of nothing to um, today, the last two quarters being considered the leading number one fuel cell company portable space in the world. And that's not with us claiming it. Uh, it just so happens the Pentagon had a neutral party go off and test all the products out there on the market, every single one internationally and Jadu listed number one. And consequently, the Ministry of Defense on the other side of the ocean did the same thing, and they ranked us number one. So we went from nowhere to one um, very nicely, um, and a large success. The company has a big name, absolutely. Um, I sit on a committee, it's called the Hydrogen Technical Advisory Committee, and it makes policy recommendations to the Department of Energy, uh, Secretary Baden. So then we sit there with Chevron and Shell and all these companies in Jeddu. So it, it's quite amazing, actually. It really is quite amazing. We got picked because we sold more hydrogen products than anyone in the world in the six years. Slam dunk. So um, the company in that position has a big effect on policy change as it relates to hydrogen storage products or any other way they facilitate and use it in our country. So that's the quick version of Jadu. Since then, um, I have joined a solar company by the name of Blue Solar. Um, very interesting space. Has anyone been tracking what's been happening in the solar space? Anyone at all? Big, huge, fast. Monday, this week, let's see, the, the stats go like this. Uh, New York listed companies 
collective valuation exceeded $100 billion in solar by itself. That's unheard of, and that's doubled in like a year. So it's just getting absolutely exponential growth every single quarter, and there's probably not an end in sight. And a couple of market dynamics are happening that's causing that. I want to chat about that, then I'll tell you what we're specifically doing in the space. Um, we are working with nanotechnology. This is a nano, we termed it a solar brush, but it's an array of vertical brushes. And each individual brush in the array is its own solar cell, standalone own solar cell. And to give you a size of how small these are, if you took a centimeter or something about this big, there's 10 million in the centimeter, 10 million solar brushes. And, and why does that advantage is because three main reasons. One is this particular structure in that array has captured the world's record for light trapping. So that's a good thing if you're in the PV market. It's a great thing. Um, th the other advantage is it uses less materials than most all other thin films out there. And I'll, I'll talk about what that is shortly. The company's outside of West Sacramento. It currently has seven employees going to 12 by the end of the year. And we are working to close our first round of funding. So it's all happened very, very fast. So why solar? I mean, why did I switch from hydrogen to solar? Um, there will be nice niche markets for hydrogen for a while. Moving it around, um, having it compatible with codes and regulations and standards from counties to cities to states to federal governments, it's a challenge. And luckily, the federal government has not figured out how to regulate the sun. I'm sure it's coming. I'm sure it will happen. <laughs> but as of now, they haven't done that. And if you look at the gigawatts per year, I'm sorry, um, um, watt hours per year the sun can produce versus all the other resources on earth, it's just obvious. I mean, it's 360 million terawatt hours annually compared to anything else up there. So, I mean, how can you not do that? And it's been around for 50, 60 years, but there hasn't been much advancements or much investment thrown in the sector until the last 18 months, $500 million in just the U.S. Been $500 million in solar in just the last 18 months in just our country. That's not worldwide, which is unbelievable. So you've gone from you know total of 100 over 50 years to 518 months. So all kinds of things are happening out there. And a lot of countries and other um, nations are seeing the same answer. How can you choose to ignore this? We have to tap into this resource because on top of this, it's an extremely way to convert clean electricity. So if you look at the problem and what it can grow to in um, gigawatt hours, which is what this measurement is, 2005 was less than 0.0037%, which is, you know, not even a niche market. It's just kind of barely interesting. And you look at what Germany and Japan and actually California is doing. Germany said they're going to be completely turned into solar renewable 30% by the year 2012, which is just unbelievable. They're ahead of schedule. Japan's doing the same thing. A big percent, we're going to be have it done by 2012. And if you look at across the entire globe, as far as installed capacity, how much and who has installed the most, it's Germany, Japan, California, PG&E specifically, which is an amazing thing if you think about that. It won't stay that way, though, because you have 
Italy stepping up, you have Spain stepping up, you have the UK turning on some huge regulations. I'll just give you a couple quickly. Um, they just passed a bill in the UK that says by 2016, any new structure will be carbon neutral. Any new structure, no matter what. And from now until then, the utilities will put 20% renewables in every single year. Otherwise, they'll decommission them, take them off. So they're being forced to go to renewables. And you have wind, solar, and a few others, biomasses. But this majority of it, solar is getting installed. So if you look at the $500 million I talked about that's been invested in the space, $375 million of it has gone into something called thin films. And what that is is a way to reduce the material, to drop the price point down, at the cost of reducing efficiency. So you have about 17 new companies in the last two years chasing thin films to the tune of $375 million. So it's a lot of investment dollars going out there. And, the, and my guess is, and my prediction is just started. There's not enough capacity. It's not, there's not enough supply out there to meet the demand. It's under, under supply until year 2010. And even at that, that's been updated, and that's moved to 2011. So ask yourself, what's different about renewables now than 10 years ago? It, there's a huge market pull. It's, it, there's not enough supply out there. And everything's getting bought up, everything. It's an amazing story. It's happening very, very fast. So our company, what are we doing? This is an actual picture looking down on our arrays, the probably billions in this picture, but we pull one bristle off over here to the right, and that becomes its own individual solar cell, standalone. So if that was damaged or it wasn't manufactured right, there's some imperfections and it wasn't working, the other 9,999,000 still continue to work. That's one benefit. Um, some of the other benefits are because it's a vertical ray and the sun's coming up over the horizon, it's always perpendicular to the sun. So it puts out about twice as much power as the standard um, flat thin film or flat silicon cell that's been out there for years. So twice as much power for the same amount of square area, which is a huge benefit. Um, it allows to use about 90% less expensive materials than the best thin films to date and the ones that are coming. So there's a, there's a term in the solar industry called first generation, second generation, and third generation. First generation is kind of the standard silicon panels you've seen for 50 years. Second generation is the thin films that are being invested in now coming out very, very thin and it's a way to reduce the material consumption. And third generations are designs like this. So it's 90% less material than the second generation. So we're really leapfrogging the technical um, ability to put power out there for very, very low prices at much, much more uh, larger power. And another huge benefit is it has the ability to, there's a term in the industry called multi-junction cells, and it's very simple. It's a cell on top of another one, on top of another one. And the advantage for doing that is it captures the entire light spectrum. So it's a way to get up to the 20 to 25% efficiency range. The chart I showed earlier as far as the market size, that's a nominal probably 12 to 15%. No one's thinking anyone can get up in the 30%. We think we have a very solid chance of doing that very quickly, which will resegment everything in the market, and probably the solar will take more of the renewable space if that can happen. Um, and last, 
at the very end of all of this, as I mentioned, the active layers go very thin on the, on the nano bristles, but the space between the bristles is additional material savings. So it's very exciting. It was very easy um, decision when I was asked to join the company to switch over. The, the space has got some key things to it. It's, it's exploding right now. All the supply is, is sold for the next two and a half years, and they're looking for year 2009, 2010, so it's a great time to introduce a new product. Um, there's not significant advancements yet. Everyone's just chasing lower costs versus higher performance and lower costs. And we're looking to bring a third generation product to market in about two to two and a half years. Any questions on that before I get off to the solar subject call? Yeah. So it makes sense to me that you have energy efficiency per dollar. Like, this is how much the cell cost, this is how much power you get out of it. But why does it matter energy efficient per percentage of light received from the sun? It seems like we have lots of light from the sun. That's, when I referred to that, that was per, per square area. So light capture, is that what you're referring to? So if you have, the correlation would be a standard flat uh, thin film. It doesn't produce power until the sun's about 10 o'clock, from about 10 to 2. This, this substrate here would start as soon as the sun hit the horizon. So it has more time throughout the day. Yes? It seems like you have a lot of technical talent. You said you have seven people and that you've really thought through a lot of the technical solutions. Can you talk a little bit more about the role that you're filling at the company and perhaps some of the marketing that you have on board as well, the team integration issues? Yeah, so if you look at this up. Um, we're technically focused, and the question was, uh, how are the other skill sets in the company, marketing, um, business development, others filling in to help broaden the picture more than just technical, I believe? So currently we're seven people growing to 12 by the end of the year. And of the seven, four are technical. Myself, we have a business development and a VP of finance. So the other three, what we've done in the last 60 days is we kind of retracted the company for a second and we redid the entire business model, how we're going to roll it out. We changed the entire strategy, the look, the feel. And we have put together a financing plan on how to raise the first round which is going quite well right now. And so it's all been about look, feel, branding, and the business model itself and how we're going to finance the new model. That's what we've done, it, which is incredibly important. That's probably as important, if not slightly more important, than all the technical work that's been done. But saying that the company did a great job taking it for the last two and a half years, they did two things really well. One is no one knows about them, which is what I liked. And the second thing is, um, they've advanced it a long ways on their own dollars and also science foundation money. So they've come incredibly far for what they've had. So now we're rolling the company out as a um, ready to go to market, <coughs> basically products ready to go to market for the first round of financing. Yes? Um, so it seems like one of the big challenges for solar firms is to get past the stage of making a prototype and you know, prototype manufacturing and get to that Yes, capital intensive. It, it, it does. So, and I don't have the answer to this question, but all the all the companies that have been funded are putting their own plants in. Okay, they're bringing, they're scaling their own manufacturing process processes up, and to put a 50 megawatt plant in, it's about 
25 to 50 million, depends on which technology you're trying to bring up. So it's very expensive. And that's just the equipment to put on the floor. It's not the labor, it's not the material, it's not the building, it's just the equipment to build it. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a science of putting very precise layers down with no flaws, very much like semiconductor, um, semiconductor, absolutely perfectly, right? And very, very, very thin microns. So we're dealing in nanometers, which is 90% thinner. You would think it'd be harder. It's not. We actually are using a uh, process electroplating versus vacuum. So we're going simpler and easier. And I know it sounds strange, but our substrate material, the way we have it set up, is more conducive for um, easier manufacturability and more precise. So we are going to put our own line in initially. We are looking at scaling contract manufacturing after the line. It's a, it's a way for us to control the processes when we first bring it in and to know what the secret sauce is so we can teach others to bring it up under licensing. But yeah, it's capital intensive and everyone has done it the way you described it. Yeah, yes. And one of the big issues with these new technologies is that people who install, for example, these kinds of um, solar cells want to make sure that they can return, they get the return on their investment. So reliability is a big issue. What kind of challenges do you face uh, in convincing people that your device is in fact reliable? Um, there's a standard spec. If you meet it, it's you, know, you have to you have to guarantee it for 20 years, and then every year they expect to lose a percent of performance. So. Whatever the, your module's putting out 150 watts, you can lose a percent of that per year going forward. But there's a very standard defined spec that if you hit and you qualify with some accelerate life testing, which is, you know, you run it 24-7, seven days a week under the extreme cold, extreme heat, you pass that in two months, everyone will accept you meet that spec, your guarantee will work. So luckily that's pretty defined. That, and that's one of the things I liked about the space. Because if you have to develop your own specs, and then your own certification process, year, two years, three years, very difficult thing to do. Uh, one of the problems with solar installer space today is the variability between panels. Like the, you know, as, as the weight structure is, there are different panels and the electricity is <coughs> connected in series and eventually it gets into an inverter. Here, isn't it that like, since you are putting all these things in individual brushes, this kind of variabilities across all different cells will even increase and that way, you know, the maximum power that can be extracted out of the cells effectively will actually reduce. We still have the same problem. Um, the benefit and advantage that we'll bring is if you have a 5 kW house or 5 kilowatt that you need to put up in your roof for your 3,000 square foot house, um, we should, and that consisted of 30 panels or 40 panels, depending on which ones you buy, will be half the panels, half the inverters, half the connections, half the wiring. So install cost goes down only because of the power output, but the question that you're asking will still will still be faced with though. It is a problem, the standards of that, and there are much better ways to do it, which are examples of more startups to come because someone's going to figure that out, and it's going to be a huge market to tap into that. Huge. I mean, the inverter should be part of the panel, built into the process is where it needs to go. Figure out how to do that, bring it to market, you'll be rich quickly. Any other questions on that? Just interested, how much technical knowledge do the non-technical uh, member of the company know before they board the team? How much technical knowledge does the non-schooled member, as far as not being an engineer, is that what you mean? people and four of them are technical roles, right? Yeah. So about the other eight people, how much 
like how much background knowledge do they know about like detailed technical stuff that you guys are doing? Or is it pure well, business? I'll start with myself. I'm probably the highest level lack knowledge. <laughs> Everyone else is deeper than I am. I don't know if that helps or not, but uh, if you talk to the one scientist we have, she'll take you 10 feet deep and then start drilling from there. Um, and no one really needs to go to that level. And there's various levels as you come up. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the entire company does not need to, s my view is, the entire company does not need to speak to the technical depth that everyone does. As long as you understand the functionality of the product and be able to explain at a high level so it's simple and be able to finance, explain it, or customer, you're fine. And let the four to five people of the 12 have the technical depth. You know, the demand's so high right now. I, I'll just give you one example. Um, there's a company by the name of First Solar. Dear to my heart, I want to be a First Solar. They did an IPO last year, 2006. They raised $600 million. They're worth $10 billion. I mean, it's, it's the start of a Yahoo story in solar. It's unbelievable. Um, there's so much demand. They sold out almost two years' supply for $1.5 billion and just modules, and they don't know where those modules are going, but all the power providers came in and bought it all up because they saw a huge shortage. So I don't know if we'll know where exactly the applications our modules will go to. It could go to houses, residentials, industrial, it could go to solar farms, don't know. Um, you'll probably end up selling to power providers, which are big organizations that come in and finance the entire um, buy, and they finance the entire install. They collect all the money, they become the small PG&Es, and they just let you have it for your surface area of your house. It's become a very nice model if you have enough surface area to let them be interested in it. So, not sure where to go, but everyone's taking care of that very quickly. Mostly overseas. A lot of stuff's getting shipped over to Germany and Japan, believe it or not. So, interesting times. I mean, if you look 10 years ago at clean tech, first of all, no one really knew what it was. No one wanted to invest in it, and no one really cared about it. If you look at it right now, every venture capitalist, private equity, hedge fund, investment banker, that's half discussion all the time. It's on the top of everyone's mind. I mean, you couldn't find a more explosive spot for investment interest and a problem solved. And, and the one thing I find very rewarding, if I because I've been in this for a while, is you, at all levels, high up in, in um, government, you know, secretary levels, right, reporting to Bush all the way down to assistance, all the way down to, you know, um, federal and state levels. Everyone's not only concerned because they want to make a good impression, but they're generally concerned about the glo global problems. They're concerned about global warming. They're concerned about our resources. They're concerned about this thing not working. Okay, so. Um, they're concerned about really, if you, if you look at all the changes that are happening, it, it really falls in four buckets. It's, it's, there's climate change that everyone's concerned about. It's happening fast. There's oil prices, $100 a barrel, 97 A little slow, but it did it. Um, Population is just exploding, which is basically putting stress on all these problems. And then there's other resources that we make products out of that's not oil that are begin, becoming scarce, and those will start driving prices just like oil. 
Those four major changes there are creating governments to change fast, which is unbelievable, the word fast and government going together. Um, investment thesis changing, companies starting up. If, if, if I find it fascinating that there's people in Europe, Italy, France, coming over to the valley here, picking up startup companies looking for investment. First time ever, it's unbelievable. You look at our, our venture capitalists up and down Sand Hill, they're all going international. They're going to China, they're going to Taiwan. I mean, it's not a Silicon Valley thing anymore. It's much larger than that. And at the end of the day, we're all trying to solve the exact same problem, which is those four problems creating a lot of opportunities for a company and people to have novel and unique ideas to solve them. So you couldn't pick a better time to even think about starting a company right now because investment is extremely high. There's a lot of people coming from every direction is trying to solve a piece of one of these problems. Now's the time. It hasn't been better as far as interest in, in starting a company and having success at it. Here's some examples of that. If you look at this, as far as adoption rates, if you look at, um, this is just U.S. now, look at the automobile. It took almost 100 years to get to 70% adoption, which is a very long time. I mean, investors don't wait 100 years to do that anymore. If you look at the, kind of the next couple things back from that, VCR took more of a vertical track over about 30 years. But if you come all the way in, and the chart's a little faded, I apologize for that, but you look at um, DSL or the Internet, within 10 years it was saturated. I mean, that's the type of replication you want on a business model. You want to, you want to get something that works, you want to scale it, you want to start building revenues. And that's exactly what's happening with, with cleantech, and more so with solar. I mean, solar looks a little bit more vertical than that. And that's happening across all cleantech products. I mean, nuclear, wind, all, all those technologies, all the products, anything you can bring to market right now, people are buying up as fast as they can just to help so be a part of solving this problem. And so you ask yourself, I mean, how you can compete against the big guys? I mean, how, how can you guys or myself compete against Sharp? That's how I look at that, right? Sharp, biggest solar panel supplier in the world. Well, if you look at some of the things in the past, it wasn't the, car, it wasn't the wagon makers that made the cars. Right? You get in this paradigm mode and you can't break out of it. So the guys who build sharp panels are going to continue to build a really good sharp panel the same way, continuously to build it. But are they going to really take third generation, fourth generation, and fifth generation seriously? Probably not. So it's, it's meant for startup companies. And I have, I've seen that now for the last five years. It's very interesting. I'll just pick another one. I mean, semiconductors didn't come from vacuum tubes. No one was even near that. And it was right in their backyard. It's a whole different way to solve the problem in a different paradigm. So that's creating the opportunities for your young companies and successful startups. Another thing I like to think about is, you know, 10 years ago there was 70 million internet users. Today, 1.2 billion, 20% of the world's population. It hasn't been around that long. It's an amazing statement if you think about that. Amazing. Google was even around. Look how big they are. First solar was only worth $100 million two year, two and a half years ago. Now's the time to start your own companies. I mean, it's, it's amazing what's happening out there. And then the solar space was nothing besides a very, 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 very small niche market, and it has quadrupled in size in just months. So I predict that will happen across all the clean techs out there, and it's going to happen. It's, it's been happening for a while and will continue to. A lot of people ask the question, is it the Internet bubble happening again? I say not. The reason why is problems much bigger. It's a much bigger problem that we're trying to solve, and it affects the entire 
globe with all the countries involved. So I think it's here for a very, very long time. I see it, I see it continuing on at the rate it's been going for a while. Here's, a, here's an example I like to use. Um, we've been talking to Flextronics, which is a contract manufacturer. If you look at, if you just go back 10 years ago, and all the contract manufacturers in the valley, Selectron was the biggest by far worldwide. And Flextron was two, three, and four, depending on what year you check it out. And they went and bought Selectron. Flextronics bought them. So it's not the big guys buying the small guys, the guys can move fast, fast ones are moving slow. And this is what their facility looked like in China. In 1999, it had about 14 buildings. So they just entered the country. Five years later, the campus turned into a city. It looks like this in five years. It's all happening very, very fast. Now, granted, a lot of those jobs are coming out of here. And when you start a company up, you have to have an international strategy for manufacturing because it's the only way you'll mass compete. It's part of the business plan. You just have to assume that. But that is a phenomenal growth in five and a half years. What's that look like in five years from now? It's going to continue at that rate, if not higher. Any questions? Can you talk a little bit about the impact that oil prices have and, and how low would the oil have to go before it would really be a factor for you over the next five years? You know, that's a great question. If you asked me that two years ago, I would say if it dipped below 50, we'd be in trouble. But my answer now would not be that because oil is just one of the factors out there. It, there's still the population explosion. There's still resources depletion outside of oil. There's still um, climate change. So I don't think the world is adopting to renewables as fast as they are because of oil. It helps. By the way, when it goes to $100 a barrel, you see all the... Uh, all the clean tech companies on the on the uh, Wall Street go up. There's no doubt, but I don't think they'd go away. It may slow down for a moment, but you'd never notice it because it's not going to change the the policies and regulations in in Germany saying that we're going to be 30% solar, just not renewable, but 30% solar before 2012. That's going to stay in place. Same thing with Japan. Spain's on board. Italy just joined. UK's doing something different, but almost as aggressive. So those laws won't go away. So I think the ball has started downhill fast enough that I don't think the oil prices is, is going to detract that much from it. Two years ago, I'd have given you a different answer, though. $97 a barrel doesn't, doesn't hurt. Anything else? So if a student were interested in trying to break into this space, what would you suggest they look for in terms of an internship or what kind of company or where is the excitement going? Come see us. <laughs> like as soon as you can. <laughs> um, I would say most companies that are just starting out, ones in the tw 8 to 12 category, are going to do a vertical growth of 30 and 40. And all my three clean tech companies, we had interns, every one of them. And it's a great resource. We love working with them. Uh, they add a lot. And over 80% of them came back and hired full time afterwards. So it's just a track record. You go and make an impression. We get to know the, the talent. They get to know us and it's a high hit ratio later. So that's why we, we like that. So seriously, just get to know the companies that are coming online, they're getting funded in the Valley or elsewhere. It's a great source to really get involved in the um, industry. Would you say that there's a relationship like Moore's Law has for semiconductor as you have for like solar panels? So the price decreasing as, as we go like 18, every 18 months or something like that? 
You know, I don't think it will be as aggressive as that. Um, I think it could be something like every three years without, with, with, you know, not as, not as much as change. Uh, I'll give you some prices. I mean, if you look at First Solar, they produce their panels for $1.40 a watt. They, 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 dollar per watt is a common measurement. And all the new players, there's Miss Lay from Kleiner Perkins, there's um, Nanosolar from MDV, there's literally 10 others out there. And everyone's chasing the dollar watt. It's the dollar watt magic mark to get below. Um, we believe we'll start at the market at 90 cents and go right down to 70 because it's so much different. I think you'll see another four or five companies like ours, different solutions that will get down to 50 and 40 cents. Then it's going to get really hard because then your commodity pricing and you're still going to use the same amount of glass and the same amount of aluminum frame and there's only so much of that build material will be able to affect and the active materials can only drop so much with no matter how much you buy of them. So you absorbing all of this spectrum? It might, there might be solutions that absorb more with higher efficiencies. The efficiency is the biggest thing in this thing. For every percent efficiency higher, it's a dramatically different solution. I mean, everyone's racing. If, if you can beat next guy out by 1%, everyone's going to buy yours. But if you beat him up by 5 or 10, you're going to resegment the market. That's the difference right there. So what's the comparable efficiency of coal or some of the other power sources? I mean, is this going to become cheap enough in the near term that it replaces some of the old dirty sources of power? So I, I don't have the exact answer because it's a really complicated question, but I'll give you a gut feel. I'll answer it on a, on a gut level. Um, everyone has always shrugged off solar at the kind of 12% efficiency at silicon prices for years, which has been very expensive, been about $5 a watt, $4.50. Um, I think the market's exploding at $2 a watt. Um, I think if anyone ever got down to a, a dollar a watt and could get in 20% range, I think solar takes about 40% more market share from everyone else. And the reason why is the fuel is free, right? And if you reduce the size and you can put on other structures, you can install costs less, you drop the price plan on the install and the other, other um, components with the system and it's more applicable for everyone else so you can be somewhat off-grid. Uh, what's missing, what, what's really missing the big picture, if someone wants to solve this problem please come see me, is storing electrons. Batteries just don't do a very good job at that. Figure out how to store electrons as a night time so when it comes back up and your, your solar panel can fill whatever storage device you have, that's what's missing, an integrated storage solution. When that hits the market and there's about 50 companies working on it, it could explode it. It could be all over. So that's the missing link. Now, I, I know that you're talking a lot about this huge market opportunity and how exciting it is. <coughs> we see a lot of trends in that way, but yet we also see statistics for California solar that are pretty scary. Like here, we have a natural gas fire power plant on campus. It's 50 megawatts. And solar in California, la last I heard, was about three times that. So, Right. Three times what we're generating here on Stanford's campus alone. The it's solar three times than what Stanford is, is what you're saying? Right, mm -hmm. right. and that, that's for all of California. Right. So uh, when you're looking at scaling up your manufacturing and you're mentioning your partnership with Flextronics, will that one partnership be enough <coughs> for the growth that you're planning, or how, how are you looking at your hockey stick growth curve? Um, that's a really good question. I can tell you part of it because I'm on camera. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's only good for part of it. It would be good for the buffer part of it. And there's going to have to be um, facilities put 
around the world to handle the growth locally, regionally. And how we do that and what that business model looks like is something we're working very hard on because that's going to be core to our company. Um, but the flex piece is very important. Now you say, you know, can they scale it up? I mean, this, this, the pitcher that was there a second ago, that one there, can produce a lot. Okay, they say, this is what a quote we got from two, a couple weeks ago, they can scale 300 megawatts in three months. So I say, if you can scale 300 megawatts in six months, I'm pretty happy. So it, it, it could scale nicely, but it's not the complete answer, and we are working on the other part. It's a core piece of our business model that we're developing and having some discussions on. I'm not sure how, our, how everyone else will solve it, but we plan on solving it. Because I think if we can be that much better, we're going to have a demand problem. So we're trying to solve that ahead of time. Good question. Any other questions? Yes. Um, Jadu raised its third round of financing, and they have a number, a large number of military and development contracts um, to the point where they're turning some down. So they're in a growth mode right now. Um, and I did decide to leave. I mean, I, I left it in good shape. The financing was closed, and the company was in, put away with starting to run their, their contracts. And I just made a decision because I think the, the growth in this sector is going to be here for a long time. And I think what Q1 Nano had is something that's going to make a huge difference. And I'm making a bet on it. But yeah. Any other questions? Are you talking about scouring and power? What's wrong with turning off electrolyzing hot water into hydrogen and burning it? You use more power doing that than, than the hydrogen pro provides. I've often looked at that. There is, there is a house in New Jersey, and, and this is where the, the technology needs to go to, but I'll tell you a guy that did this. Um, the state of New Jersey paid him $4 million, and he put, um, I think, 500 kW of solar panels. He has five acres, and he has four electrolyzers, okay? He put the power in the electrolyzers during the day to make enough hydrogen. He stored it in... 14 takes of hydrogen in the ground, and he ran the fuel cells for the house at night, and then it was a complete cycle that did that. So with enough money, it works. You can be completely off-grid and be completely renewable. Someday, that needs to be all integrated into one solution, but right now, if you look at the electrolyzers, it consumes a lot more power than they make hydrogen for on the net. That's why it's not a popular solution, but there's a lot of companies working on that right now. That's one of the answers that could come to market that could could just resegment it again. Well, there has to be other chemicals where you can just go pump energy into them and change their state and the whole drop to a few hours. Sounds like a company starting here. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, I just want to close with, you know, if you guys are, are thinking about starting a company on your own, you couldn't pick a better time. The, the world's changing so fast. I mean, I've seen more change in one 12-month period in probably the entire last five years, and I don't see it slowing down because it's one problem globally that everyone's trying to solve, and I think for the first time ever they're taking it very, very seriously. So thank you very much. I appreciate being invited. <laughs>